I'm on staff at Riverside Community Church, and I'm so excited to be uh, here with you all this morning. And I'm excited to get to know you over lunch and spend time with you, not only today, but throughout this week. Um, well, I want to start off with a story, and that's last year. Uh, while I was on staff at Riverside, I actually worked also at a company called REI, which is like a big outdoor camping type store. Uh, and I worked there as a bike mechanic, so I fixed bikes um, for almost a year. But while I was there, I learned many things, not only about how to fix bikes and how to learn and tell about all these products that we had at our store. It's a pretty big store with all kinds of things. But I also learned of what it meant to be an employee of REI. And we wore these green vests that had all kinds of pockets to carry all kinds of things. And we were affectionately called green vesters at a store or at REI. Um, but to be a green vester, it meant that we had to be these experts in our field. So me working in the bicycle section, I was an expert in not only knowing how to fix bikes, but how to fit people on bikes, make sure they had the right equipment that they needed to, to go on a ride. But not only were we experts, we were expected to go that extra mile to care about our customers, to show that we could really ensure that they had what they needed to be successful as they went to explore the outdoors. But one thing that was essential to us being a green vester was we wanted people to become members of REI, members of the co-op, as it was called. And you can think of membership as kind of like a rewards program or a benefits program where you can save money or get these different perks of going to classes and whatnot. Um, but we were, our main goal, like I said, was to gain membership. So our, myself and my coworkers would often spend many different hours trying to tweak our little 30-second pitch to share with people or try to make sure that we're um, just practicing what we had so that we can bring these people into becoming members. And all this hard work that we had of trying to low and to, to learn and to grow in our commun communication skills, it paid off as our store had the highest membership conversion rate of any store in our region. So on these days where you have all these people coming to become members of REI, you'd hear Tanya 178 or Paul 178. 178 was our store number. And when it was said on the radio, that meant that someone successfully became a member of REI. And I mention all these things because it shows us kind of what's happening in our text today. When we're sharing about these memberships at REI, we, we knew how to do this because we are deeply rooted in our culture. We were deeply rooted in the mission of REI. We also knew how important it was to grow with each other as our fellow greenvesters to encourage, to build them up. And finally, we knew how to give everything we had for the sake of the store and bringing people into membership. Similarly, that's, what ha that's, what happening, or that's what's happening in this church in Antioch as it's growing, as it's thriving. And as we dive into this section of Acts, my hope is that we'll learn not only that this, Acts is gospel, or this church is gospel-rooted, but it's gospel-built, and it gives this gospel relief not only to themselves, but throughout the world, as we'll see. But would you pray with me in that light? Father God, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that it's true that has all authority. And Lord, we thank you that you allow us to, to come to you. And Lord, this morning I come to you feeling tired, somewhat foggy. Lord, I ask that you would give me energy and sustain me this morning. Lord, I ask that you give me clarity. And Father, I pray for all of us here as we dive into your word, Lord, that you would uh, help us to come to you and expect to meet you here. Lord, would you give us eyes to see you? Or would you give us ears to hear you? And Lord, would you give us hearts to receive you? Use this time for your glory, Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.
Well, as we can see, uh, the church is gospel-rooted. Our text opens up by saying that those, speaking of these Jews that were um, persecuted or scattered uh, because of what Stephen says, um, that they spread throughout the world. Um, But what exactly caused this persecution, and why were these Jewish people scattered? To give you some context, in Acts chapter 6, Stephen is introduced as this guy who was commissioned by the apostles to help build the church and to care for the church. Now, Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew or a Greek-speaking Jew, uh, so he was different than the regular Jews that were in the church in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 7, he gives his famous sermon to the church in Jerusalem as uh, he's comparing these Jewish people, essentially saying that they're like the Israelites, that they've been rejecting the people that God has sent them to not only help them to grow, but to, to save them from the things that were causing them trouble. And in particular, Stephen is making the claim that these Jewish people were rejecting Jesus, that they were rejecting the fact that he was the one that God sent to deliver them from their sin. And this is the teaching that Luke, the author of Acts, is telling us in this section. And these Jewish leaders weren't happy about the things that Stephen was teaching, so they basically made up some false claims saying he blasphemed against God and Moses, and they sentenced him to death by stoning. And thus starts the persecution of the Jews that were faithfully following Christ. And that's why they were scattered, uh, because they wanted to flee from this. And as they were scattering and fleeing from this persecution, they they spread to different parts of the Middle East. They spread to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. These places were very far from Jerusalem in that uh, Cyprus was an island approximately 100 miles off the coast. Phoenicia was far up north in the Middle East in modern-day Lebanon. But way, way up in the top of the Middle East towards Turkey, in modern-day Turkey and Syria, is Antioch, this church that uh, our text centers on. But what makes Antioch stand out is that it's the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It served both as a cultural hub and a financial center as trade routes and all these explorative routes came through Antioch. It connected the, the, the west and the east, per se. It's kind of like Manchester here, that it was where businesses and people flocked to grow and to develop. And as these early Jesus followers are making their way north towards this great city, they're sharing about Jesus with the Jews only. Now, we aren't really told why they were just sharing with the Jews in particular. Maybe they were just comfortable sharing with them, so that's why they did. But like I said, we aren't really sure why. But there's about to be a dramatic shift in uh, our text. In verse 20, it says that some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, or these Greek-speaking Gentiles, that they were teaching or preaching the Lord Jesus to them. Now, Luke doesn't name these men or give any particular detail about them or where they're from. or He tells them where they're from, not any other detail about them, but it seems as if he's trying to paint the picture that they're these ordinary men who were trying to do extraordinary things by sharing the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles, who have not yet heard him. Now, you might be asking yourself, why in the world would these individuals be traveling from places far off, where uh, Cyprus and Cyrene? Um, it's kind of in modern-day northeast Africa, if you will. But why were they going all these far places to share about Jesus? Well, to understand that, we have to look back at the previous chapter of Acts, in Acts chapter 10, where Peter received a vision from God, and from it, God told Peter that Uh, He can now eat the ceremonially unclean and impure animals. 
Now remember, uh, the law was given that these Jewish people couldn't eat these animals because they were clean. They, uh, they were unclean. Um, that would uh, cause them to be unpure. Um, and as, jo- or as, Peter was sh- or as Peter received this vision, he was pondering what, it, pondering what it meant. The Lord invited him to come to the house of a man named Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion. And he was not only a Roman centurion, but he feared the Lord. Another way to describe Cornelius is that he was a Gentile, the one that was often considered unclean and less than by these Jewish leaders. As Peter began to listen to Cornelius, he realized that this vision uh, that he received from the Lord showed that God doesn't show favoritism to people, that the good news and the peace of Jesus is available to all men, including the Gentile. More so than that, this peace that Christ brings uh, gives forgiveness to everyone who believes in him. And at the end of Acts 10, we see two different things happen. First is that these Jewish believers were amazed that the Holy Spirit was given to the Gentiles. And we also see that Cornelius and his family were baptized, that they wanted to make this public confession of following the Lord. And this small little section of Acts 10 shows that the dividing line that once existed between the Gentile and the Jew was now gone. That these two groups of people could now feast together around God's greater table. And to bring us back into our text today, we don't know if these Cyprians and Cyrenians heard this message of Peter sharing the gospel to these Gentiles, but we do know they believed this very message. They knew that Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, took upon himself not only their ceremonial uncleanliness as Gentiles, but they took upon their moral uncleanliness, their sin, the ways that they rejected God, the ways that they failed to follow his law. And they knew that Jesus hung shamefully and helplessly abandoned on a tree as he bore the full wrath and weight of God's destruction against sin. And they knew that as Jesus took their sin, he gave them his own righteousness so that when God looked at him, they would be clean and purified. They knew that what was once available to the Jews was now made available to them, that they now could be a part of the saving work of Christ. And what was true of them, what was true of them then is true of us now. That if we place our faith and hope in Jesus' work on the cross, we too can say with absolute certainty that our sin has been taken to us, or has been, um, our sin has been cleansed and he has given us his own righteousness. And this gospel message or this good news is made available to all men, to all people. And it frees us from being bound to sin because we are now bound to Christ and nothing can ever take that away from us. And it was this gospel message of the cleansing work of Christ that totally transformed these men. That it became deeply rooted in their hearts. And that's why they went through so many miles, through so many days' journeys to reach these people who did not yet know Jesus. Because they wanted them to come to believe in this, to experience this, to to know what they have. And these faithful, nameless men shared the goodness of the Lord Jesus. And the text says, that the hand of the Lord is with them, and that a great many people turned to the Lord. Two things to note here. Um, One, you don't have to be famous to share the gospel. You don't have to have the right degree or the right credentials or to know all the information in the world. All that's required is for you to be faithful, to be true to God's word, to rely on him. Second, 
the Lord is the one who opens the eyes of those who don't yet know him. It's not something that we can do. We have no power to do that or ability to do that. It's God alone who can do that. But our responsibility in that is to lovingly and faithfully share the truth of God's gospel and to share the message of salvation with others. And because it's God's only ability to convert people, to open their eyes to the gospel, we can rest freely on him to do that. And I want to take a second to ask the question, is the gospel so deeply rooted rooted in us that it propels us to share the good news of Christ with those around us? Are we living in a posture that reflects that we have this security in Christ? Or are we living in a way that says that I have to have security from what people say about me rather than what Jesus says about me. And as I reflect on my own life, there are many times where I'm the latter and not the former, where I'm so caught up in my own anxiety about how people perceive me and how they view me. I think about my own time in REI where there was this person, it was a slow day at work, and she was talking about this spiritual book that she was reading and how she had these questions about just spiritual life in general. And I remember in that moment that instead of wanting to share about Jesus with her or wanting to talk about uh, what she was believing, just the way, the questions that she had, I was so afraid to to think of ways that she would see me. I was afraid to think of, oh, if I talk about Jesus, she's going to reject me. That I fell onto my own anxiety rather than resting on the security that I had in Christ. And what our text is telling us here today is that we have to remember that we are bound to Christ. And that we have to remember that this gospel message is so rooted in us that we can be like these men from Cyprian and Cyrene, that they were so rooted that they shared this goodness with them. We have to remember that when we're tempted to flee in those situations, that we need to rest on the strength that God gives us, that we can embrace those awkward and hard things because God is present with us. Just as the hand of the Lord, hand of the Lord was with them, the hand of the Lord is with us. And we have to remember that the God who gave us his Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that rose Christ from the dead, the powerful spirit that God has, resides in us. And we can operate out of that rather than our own anxiety, that we rely on the Spirit to give us boldness and courage and wisdom and clarity as we speak these things. And we rely that as we take that one step of obedience, that the Spirit will plant those small seeds of gospel truth that will hopefully blossom and to flourish. But not only are we gospel-rooted to share this gospel message with non-Christians, we're gospel-rooted in that we do the same thing with each other, with our brothers and sisters in the faith. And that leads me to my second point, that the church can only thrive if it's gospel-built. Read uh, verses 22 through 23 with me. And it says, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Upon hearing the news about what was happening in Antioch, the church in Jerusalem wanted to send someone to go and see if they could verify what they'd been hearing about this church. So the church sends Barnabas to investigate, and what a report he has to give. He sees, or he shows up and sees the very grace or the favor that God has for his people thriving in this church in Antioch. And he knew that the only way this young church would be growing and be thriving the way that it is is because of the Lord, that it's only the Lord's divine hand that could have done this. But notice how Barnabas responds to seeing God's grace. It says he was glad. In the Greek, it actually means he's re- uh, rejoicing exceedingly. 
I don't know if you're familiar with the characters of Winnie the Pooh, but it's almost like Barnabas was Tigger, jumping around with joy, seeing what God was doing. That is this natural outflow of the Christian seeing God at work is we should be rejoicing. We should be all excitement. We, should, we don't want to be like Eeyore, who's just pessimistic. We should be like Tigger, just so excited to see what God is doing. Well, Luke continues this story as he uh, tells that Barnabas lives up to his name, that his name literally means the son of encouragement. And he's encouraging these new believers. But it's not how you normally think encouragement is. He's, he's not saying, hey, you're doing a great job. Keep up the good work. They, they were doing a great job, and they were doing great work. But he tells them specifically to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. He wanted them to cling to God with everything they had. He saw how they turned toward God. They turned away from their own past, their own sin, their own old ways, and they changed directions toward God himself, to cling to him, to devote themselves to him. And he wants them to continue to turn to God and hold fast to them because the big city has many different philosophies and ideas and distractions that pull these young believers away from their Savior. And I think the same applies to us today. That our culture often draws us ever so slightly away from the Lord. That we're often told we must work more hours to gain more money so that we can be successful in our security. We're often told that we have to be more loved and accepted as we conform to a particular image that we see on social media. But the problem with both of these things is that they're lies. That we have to be doing constantly more and more work to be successful when that success isn't even guaranteed. And what's crazy about these lies is that eventually they cause self-destruction and that we'll run to the ground trying to do something that we just don't know if it's going to work out or not. There's no point in trying to live for these things when we're already accepted and loved by Christ. He's given us that eternal security, that glorious life with him. And it's not worth giving that up for something else that will never fully satisfy in Psalm 23, it says that the Lord is our great shepherd and that he brings us to green pastures and still waters. And as we follow Christ, he will certainly guide us to places that give life and give flourishing and give sustainment. And he gives us ultimate peace. And if we cling to him in that, that promise will certainly become true. And just as Barnabas was using his words to build up these young believers in Antioch, we are to do the same. That as we gather on Sundays or throughout the week and meet each other one-on-one or as we have people over to our homes, we need to be encouraging each other to pursue Christ. We need to be encouraging each other to live in obedience with him. Maybe that means that we meet with one or two people a week to study scripture and talk about together or to pray together. Or maybe it means we invite families into our homes so that we can feast together and hear what God is doing in our lives. That's one way we can encourage each other and to grow together or to see the different gifts that we have and help use them and hone them as we're together. But regardless of what that could be for you, we should always be striving to build up and encourage one another, to become more like Christ and to grow deeper in our relationship with him. And this idea of having followers of Christ build up and encourage each other continues in verse 25. It mentions that Barnabas went to Tarsus to search for Saul. But why would Barnabas be looking for this guy? Well, if we think back to Acts uh, in chapter 9, we see that God chose Saul to be a mouthpiece that would declare 
his gospel to the Gentile people. Now, later on in the chapter, uh, Saul would try to join the gospels and, or join the apostles and proclaim the gospel. But remember, he was just persecuting the church, so like we don't know if we should do that. Uh, but then Barnabas comes along and was vouching for him. He said he's been seeing what God's been doing in Paul's life, and he's been proclaiming boldly who Jesus was. And as some time passed, Paul was now in Tarsus, and Barnabas is on the hunt for the man that was destined to faithfully teach Christ to the Gentiles. And this would include the growing church in Antioch. And now these two men came to Antioch together. They stayed for a year and taught these young believers. And it was Barnabas' faithfulness in not only vouching for Paul and finding him to come back to Antioch, Paul would later create a long line of faithful ministry that he would later disciple Timothy, who would later help build the Ephesian church. And I want to ask the question, are we trying to build one another up so that we leave this long train of disciples that continually live on mission to share the good news of Christ with others, to help other people grow in their faith with the Lord? And what's great about all this is that ordinary people can do it. Just like these ordinary men that came from this faraway place, we too can do that. But you might be asking yourself, how in the world can we do this? It seems like an impossible task. In some sense, you're right, it is impossible if we do this out of our own power and our own strength and our own wisdom. But look at verse 24 with me. It says that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That the Greek word for full literally means thoroughly permeated with. So in other words, Barnabas was so devoted to the Lord that the the Spirit saturated everything in him. It touched every part of his being. That Barnabas was in total reliance and dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And the text also says that Barnabas was a man of faith. Now, faith isn't this an idea where we blindly go into a situation and hopefully that it works out. Faith, rather, is an expectation that God will show up and move in our situations because he's done it in the past. And in the same way that he's done it in the past, he can do it again in the future. That faith relies on us trusting in the character and the unchangeableness of God. And as we live this faith of trusting God and relying on his spirit, that's how we can live a life of connection and discipleship, of leading or leaving this train of disciples. It's not something we do out on our own, but rather it's something that we do out of the infinite power and might and authority of God himself. And when you do that, people notice that you begin to stand out. That's why in verse 26, Luke tells us that uh, the Antioch disciples were first called Christians. This term was probably first coined by Romans to be an assault or an insult for uh, these people. Uh, But I'm sure that much of the disappointment of the Romans, this insult is actually a great compliment. Matthew Henry, who's an author and a theologian, he's written many commentaries on many books of the Bible. But he says this about being a follower of Christ. He says that it denotes one who, from serious thought, embraces the religion of Christ, believes the promises, and makes his chief care to shape his life by Christ's precepts and example. What a greater honor is there than to be called someone by, or to be called by name that means that you've seriously thought about and counted all the costs of following Christ and now made it your mission to pursue him with all your being. Continuing on, what happens when the, faith, when the saints faithfully pursue the Lord? It says a large number of people were added to the Lord. 
that a natural outflow of being filled by God is evangelism and discipleship, that we're so full of joy and hope in Christ that the only thing we can do is talk to people about it. It's this natural outworking of what God has done in our own lives. And we don't just share the spiritual blessing that we have, uh, but it's also this, there's also a physical blessing there, and that brings us to our last point, that the gospel brings relief. Look at verses 27 to 30 with me. It says, Now in those days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, every one of them according to his own ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now in these verses we see, we see something remarkable take place. To give you more context, earlier in chapter 11, the church in Jerusalem was appalled that Peter would eat with the Gentiles, these unclean people. But upon hearing this, Peter rightly declared that what was once unclean, God has now made clean. He even spoke of how the gift of the Holy Spirit descended on the Gentiles was the same gift that was given to these Jewish followers of Christ. Therefore, Peter could not justify hindering what God has given uh, which was the salvation and purification made available to all men, that he could no longer hinder God doing that. And upon hearing this, the Jewish people became silent, and they glorified God, and they said, God has given repentance, resulting in life, even to the Gentiles. And that brings us back to our little section of Acts 11, where we see these words lived out, that the church in Jerusalem was now sending people to the church in Antioch, that the Jew is now with the Gentile, that there was this combining this unity that was existing. Now, the church in Jerusalem thought, might have thought this was a way to encourage the church in Antioch by sending these prophets, these people, to help build the saints for the work of ministry. And as these prophets spoke about the impending famine that was going to sweep through the entire world, uh, the Antioch church, full of these Gentiles, selflessly gave back to their brothers in Jerusalem. The same ones who first questioned their ability to be clean were now receiving things from the people that uh, they often talked bad about. Also recalled the fact that Antioch is a wealthy city, so they're probably sending all kinds of relief to the Jerusalem church, that they're sending loads and loads and loads of blessing to them. And this must have been such a huge blessing to the Jerusalem church that was just about to be in a famine. And in a similar way, we also give selflessly and sacrificially with the intention of giving blessing and relief to all people. But this is especially true of our brothers and sisters in the faith. And we give not only our finances and our talents or our gifts and our time, that we do this selflessly and sacrificially so that we can care for our greater church family. And as we serve one another, we're then able to go back out and engage with the culture and engage with the people who are around us so that we can be an instrument that God will use to share his blessing with the world, to help bring restoration to a very broken world as we declare the excellencies of Christ. Now back at Riverside, one of the pastors that's on staff always ends his sermon with a sticky note. And if a sticky note is kind of that thing you leave on your computer or your desk to remind you of important things throughout the week. And kind of in that same vein, I will leave you with this sticky note, that the thriving church is first filled so that it can build. That a thriving church devotes itself to pursuing God so that God can use the church to build his kingdom. And one way that we show our devotion to the Lord is through the Lord's Supper. 
that Jesus instituted this as a normal and necessary way to worship him.